I'd like you to turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. This follows on from Paul's time in Athens, uh, which we read about in chapter 17, where some mocked and others uh, listened and wanted to hear more. And Paul moves on from Athens then and comes to Corinth. We read uh, from verse 1 uh, right through to verse 17. So let's once again hear God's word. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Amen. And we ask for God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Well, if you have that passage that we read open before you, we'll turn to it again as we come to our last address of this weekend. We've been thinking along the theme of building for Christ in a hostile world. And we saw the first session how we are taking part in what we would call a task unfinished a task that Christ gave to his disciples that they took and carried on and that we ourselves in the church of Jesus Christ are to carry, on, to carry on, that we're to take the gospel as witnesses of Jesus Christ 
starting where we are, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we saw then the second message, how we need boldness for that task. We saw that the opposition that can come and the need for boldness to be able to carry out that task faithfully. And then this morning we saw the impact of the church uh, as we carry out uh, in this world, in a hostile world, what uh, the church looks like that has an impact uh, for Christ. And this evening's uh, address I've entitled Finding Encouragement in a Hostile World. Finding Encouragement in a Hostile World. If I were to read a list of biblical characters, Moses, Joshua, Elijah, David, Hezekiah, Job, Jeremiah, and Paul. What do these servants servants of God have in common? Well, you could say that they are all men who uh, did great things, achieved great things in the service of the Lord, and that would be a good answer. But there's something else that these men have in common. Something that we prefer perhaps not to think about or to talk about. All these men, great men, great servants, each one went through periods of deep discouragement and even despair. They weren't robots. And yet... Despite the children's chorus, which ends, and now I am happy all the day, it is true that even the greatest of God's servants go through dark, very dark times. If someone ever tells you that the Christian life is a life where you're always smiling, always positive, where everything always goes well and you never have any worries, run Run, run as far from that person as you can go. Yet people do say that. People are are preaching that. They've never read, I don't think they've ever read the Bible, but they certainly haven't read the book of Acts. And know also that discouragement or despair is not limited to great servants, well-known servants who have a public ministry. Any follower of Christ can go through dark times. Any follower of Jesus, young or old, new to the faith or a mature believer can be discouraged. And that means you and me. We can maintain a facade. We can keep smiling so that others won't see. But in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls that we've been singing about, discouragement can set in and it can last for days or weeks or months or even years. And so in the service of the Lord, we can find ourselves discouraged, spiritually and physically exhausted. And this was the case for the Apostle Paul in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. In this chapter, we see a discouraged man at the end of his second missionary journey. And in verses 1 to 17, we see why Paul is discouraged. We see the reasons he is downcast. But praise God, we see how God 
comes along beside Paul and encourages his discouraged servant. We see how God encourages and strengthens this broken man. And so in the first uh, part of our study, I want us to see uh, how Paul was discouraged and then how God came alongside him to encourage him. So in chapter 18, Paul arrives in Corinth discouraged. Already in his second missionary journey, we can see uh, Paul in a series of cities where he proclaims the gospel. There are conversions, which is extremely encouraging. That's one of the most encouraging things we can experience in Christian service. That is seeing men and women, boys and girls, uh, your children even, coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a few things more encouraging than that. And Paul sees Jews and Gentiles finding salvation in Jesus Christ. But in each city where he seeks to build for Christ, there is also strong opposition. There is hostility to the gospel, especially from the Jews, the people to whom Paul belongs, the people whom he loves so much. That's where the fiercest opposition comes from. And so Paul is falsely accused. He's thrown into prison. He's stoned. He's humiliated. He's driven out of the city, beaten to within an inch of his life. Imagine the spiritual, mental and physical impact of all of this at the hands of his own people, whom he loves. Try to imagine seeing the hatred on the faces of people you love. Hearing the hatred and hearing the contempt in their voices it would be heartbreaking and soul-destroying. My heart, says Paul, is bursting with love and affection for these people. And like Christ, he was deeply distressed to see them as sheep without a shepherd. And he reaches out to them in love and they hate him. They want to kill him. And Paul experiences immense suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's before he even arrives in Corinth. And it must be said that Corinth is not exactly the easiest destination for a discouraged missionary. It's a city well known as a center for sexual immorality. Corinth knows no taboos. One author describes the city as follows. Corinth was one of the most promiscuous cities of antiquity. Its name was synonymous with debauchery. A verb, Corinthianize, was even coined to mean to prostitute oneself. And 460 meters above the city was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And every evening, thousands of, pro of priestesses of Aphrodite would descend on the city to offer their sacrifices. That's where the discouraged missionary is going. But tell me this, how would you feel going on an evangelistic crusade and a go team to that city? Do you think the inhabitants of Corinth will be open to a message calling them to repent? Calling them to a life of piety, of holiness? And on top of their immorality, it's also a very prosperous city. It's a big international trade city. 
And so in human terms, it's a very it's a place that's hardened to the gospel and where it will be hard for the seeds of the gospel, humanly speaking, to penetrate. And you add to all of this the fact that Paul is travelling alone. He was alone in Athens and he makes the trip to Corinth alone. His companions in the missionary work will come later. And verse 5 of chapter 18 confirms this for us. And so when we read Paul's epistles, we see how much he values partners in ministry. And so if, if he says how much he values partners in ministry, we can imagine what it was like going to Corinth alone. And Paul is all too aware of his own weaknesses. And he says this in the la his later letters to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3. This is how we know he's discouraged. I, came, I myself came to you in a state of weakness and fear and great trembling. Paul? Paul? Fear? Weakness? Trembling? Yes. He's not a robot. And perhaps it was the lack of success, the relative lack of success in Athens that had shaken his confidence for his ministry in Corinth. We don't know. It's possible. Chapter 17, verse 34 tells us that some believed. Not many, only a few. And there is clearly a struggle going on in his head before he gets to Corinth about the effectiveness of the message he's proclaiming. He says in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, For I had determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. He had had to determine that. He had had to work it out in his mind. Am I going to preach that? Is that going to be my message? Yes. Will it be effective? Will this message bear fruit in Corinth? Perhaps I need to change the message to make it more palatable to the Corinthians. No, I determine. I determine to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. And then when Paul arrives in Corinth, we see in verse 3 of our chapter that he can't devote himself to full-time gospel ministry. This is what the, at least what the, the, the commentators are saying. They say he, he goes to the synagogue every Sabbath. But we read that in other set, cities that he went to, he went every day to the synagogue. Now, it's suggested that he seems to have had to make tents in Corinth to support himself financially. So he's, he's limited in the impact that he can have in terms of preaching and teaching. We can, he, he, he agrees to to make tents, to, to make a living for himself, but we can imagine that he would much prefer to be in full-time ministry. And that's what happens when, Paul, when uh, Silas and Timothy arrive in verse 5. Uh, the commentator suggests that they would have brought financial support uh, to Paul, which would have enabled him then to set aside the tent-making uh, to concentrate on full-time gospel work. And it can be frustrating and discouraging when our circumstances don't allow us to do the ministry of our choice. We can be frustrated by lack of time or lack of resources or, or lack of manpower to help us. If only there were more of us. 
If only we had more time, if only we had other gifts or other people. And you can see why, why Paul might be discouraged. And once again, in Corinth, as he had experienced it elsewhere, he is faced with a hostile reaction. Verse 6, the Jews were opposing him with blasphemies. Again, a backlash from his own people. And this time the violence is so great that Paul feels compelled to stop his ministry among the Jews. We read, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Let's not imagine this was easy for Paul to say. And the hostility continues in verse 12. The Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Here he is once again before the court. Again persecuted for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isolated, persecuted by his own people. His message widely rejected. Unable to give himself as he would wish to the work in the most immoral of all cities. And we can identify, can't we, with discouragement with some of these circumstances. I remember when I was at college, on a Tuesday, I, would, I used to drive the, a long hour from Clock Mills up to uh, Knock Bracken. And I would arrive first on a Tuesday morning, and Mr. Donnelly would come next. And we would compare the, the rough traffic and the aggressive Belfast drivers and how hard it was to drive in the winter nights uh, all that way from Clock Mills uh, and from Carrick. And then one day he was preaching on the struggles and the sufferings of Paul. And he looked at me and said, it's tough driving an hour from Clock Mills, isn't it? That was the last time I, <laughs> last time I complained about the, the hardships. But we can, under, we, can, we can identify with some of what Paul's experience, experiencing. We know what it's like to feel isolated in the service of the Lord. It's discouraging to feel alone as we serve the Lord. Alone, perhaps, in your family. Alone in your workplace. Alone in your class. Alone in your group of friends. Alone in your team. A minority in your society. Spiritual isolation is wearying. It's demoralizing. And we long for fellowship in Christ. We need friends who love the Lord. Friends with whom we can share and pray together. We saw that yesterday. Friends who understand. Fellowship in the gospel is so precious. And without it, we can quickly become discouraged. Illustrate this on a very simple level. Imagine you're going out on door-to-door work here. Would you rather go by yourself or with someone else? We saw that last night with the distribution in Nantes. Of course you'd rather go with someone else. Of course you would. And when we see little fruit for our efforts, or worse than that, when our witnessing is is met with indifference or hostility, it is hard not to lose heart. And it's hard not to lose confidence. And without realizing it, we can lose confidence even in the message. Perhaps we're tempted to question the effectiveness of the message we're, we're proclaiming. 
we need constantly to review our methods. But our message, if it's the message of the gospel, we can be tempted to think, is this really effective in a sophisticated world? In a society that has largely rejected God, can we trust the simplicity of this message? Don't we need something more impressive? Don't we need something more attractive? In a world that's so attached to its sin, would it not just be easier not to mention repentance or not to mention sin? Would that not make our message easier to accept? And worse than losing confidence in the message, perhaps we can even lose confidence in God. Can God really change these people? Will God really bless our meager efforts? And our enemy, we've seen his tactics, he tries to undermine our confidence, our strength. He tries to demoralize us. He wants to fix our eyes on our weaknesses, on our limitations. He wants us to give up. And that's what he tried with Paul. And that's what he tries with us too. So let's see how God encouraged Paul in a hostile world. And let's see how he can encourage us as well. And in this passage, I want to see three ways that God encourages the Apostle Paul and ourselves. Firstly, through his people. Secondly, through his power. And thirdly, through his promises. God encourages through his people. Verse 2, we read, Paul found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And verse 3 tells that Paul stayed with them to work together. In God's good providence, when Paul arrived alone in Corinth, he just so happens to meet a couple of refugees zealous for the Lord. This couple has had to leave Rome because of persecution. And it just so happens that they're in Corinth when Paul needs fellowship the most. And thanks to their presence in Corinth, Paul is no longer alone. And as luck would have it, don't quote me on that, but that's just a phrase, there's a natural link between there's a great phrase in French, you can't really translate it, il s'avère que, it turns out that, that's the, really the best translation. And it, we see it all the way through the book of Ruth, and it turned out that, and it turned out that, or it just so happened that, or as luck would have it. There's a natural link between this couple and Paul. They're in the same business. They have much in common. And it's not good luck. It's God providentially encouraging his servant through the presence of his people. Despite their difficult circumstances, Priscilla and Aquila put themselves at the service of the Lord. They seek to serve God where he has providentially placed them. They don't sit around feeling sorry for themselves for having been chased out of Rome. No, they serve. And this is an encouragement to Paul and others And Paul will later refer to them in Romans 16 as my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They make their home, these refugees, they make their home available to the church and they will serve 
uh, together to explain the gospel more clearly to Apollos. Persecuted refugees serving together with Paul in the work of the gospel. God's providence is a beautiful thing. They're exactly what Paul needs. I remember the week that Malcolm and Muriel left Nantes after about at least 30 years. And you thought, gulp. For the first time ever, the balls are no longer here. How are we going to cope? And the very, the very week they were leaving at church for the first time was a missionary couple from the United States who spoke fluent French, who were good friends with many of our Reformed Presbyterian brethren in the United States who are used to psalm singing, didn't find us strange, and from, who from that day on for the next two years joined us in missionary at exactly the right time. God's providence is a beautiful thing. And he sent his people to encourage us in Nantes that time when we needed it most. And the difficult circumstances of Priscilla and Aquila's life do not prevent them from being an encouragement to others. And that's a lesson for us. Do you remember when Jesus sent the, the, told the disciples to feed the 5,000 to, to go and get food for them? And they just came up with excuses. Said it's the wrong time, it's late, it's the wrong place, it's a desolate place, we don't have the right resources, what's this, look, with five loaves and two fish, what's this amongst so many? Excuses after excuses. But Priscilla and Aquila, they could have done the same. We're just refugees. We've been displaced. We're persecuted. People should be serving us. That's not their attitude. And perhaps tonight the circumstances of your life are not those that you would choose for yourself. But you mustn't let that stop you serving and encouraging and investing in the work of the gospel. If you wait for the perfect circumstances to come for you to serve, to encourage, you'll wait forever. In the place that God has put you now, with the circumstances as they are now, you can encourage others. There may be many things that you can't do in the service of the Lord, but encouraging people by your presence is one that you can do. Your presence, your partnership, your praying, all these things encourage discouraged servants. And if God encourages Paul by new friends, he also encourages Paul with old friends, Silas and Timothy. Here are friendships forged in the service of the Lord, in suffering for the Lord, a deep friendship between brothers and Christ. And this type of friendship is truly a precious gift which the Lord uses to encourage discouraged servants. It's the kind of friendship that is only cultivated through sacrificial service together. You won't know this kind of friendship if you avoid sacrificial service. You'll have friends, but not like these. And I thank God for friends like Priscilla and Aquila, new friends this weekend, and friends like Silas and Timothy, 
old friends this weekend. Servants of Christ who encourage us by their presence and by their partnership in ministry. And we must seek to be such friends to others. Whether it's new friends or old friends. So God encourages through his people. Then we see God encouraging through his power. Verses 4 and 5 describe Paul's ministry in Corinth. And at first he goes to every synagogue, to the synagogue every Sabbath, to talk to the Jews. And after Silas and Timothy arrive, in verse 5 we see that Paul devoted himself entirely to the word. And in verse 6 we get the impression that his ministry doesn't bear much fruit to start with. Luke describes the opposition to Paul's ministry. The Jews opposed and reviled him. And we've really seen how discouraging that reaction is. But Paul explains in verse 8 that there is nonetheless encouragement for Paul. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. The message, even if it's rejected by, violently by most, it still bears fruit. Hearts are touched and people are, believe and are saved. The ruler of the synagogue is converted. Who would have believed it? Many of these Corinthians are converted. Who would have imagined it possible in a city renowned for its sexual immorality that these people would be willing to listen to the gospel and would even be changed by it? And while it's true that there may be less fruit than there was in Jerusalem and less fruit than in other cities, the power of the gospel is still at work. And we know that the gospel seems to be bearing less fruit in Western Europe than elsewhere in the world. We don't see the conversions in Western France and Southern Ireland here in the north that we see elsewhere in the world. But despite that, God continues to encourage us by showing us the power of the gospel at work, even if it's in small ways. We see the power of the gospel in our, in our churches with hearts transformed, lives transformed. We see it in France. Evangelicals are a tiny percentage of the population. Yet there are more than 15 times more evangelical Christians in France now than there were 70 years ago. Now you imagine that said of Northern Ireland. If you had 15 times more evangelical Christians in Northern Ireland than 70 years ago, well, most people tonight would be at church. And so while on one level we might see we don't see much fruit for the gospel, 15 times more. 70 years ago there were 50,000 evangelicals in France. Now there are 600,000, 700,000. Now, it's not many in a population of 67 million, but God is at work. We see con conversions in the most difficult places, among the communities most close to the gospel. We see enough of the power of the gospel to encourage us to persevere. Remember that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes. No heart is too hardened. 
No community is too closed. No society is too hostile. The message we proclaim is powerful. God has promised to use it for the salvation of all who believe. We often hear that the Ukrainian army needs more powerful weapons to repel the Russian army. This is not the case for Christians who proclaim the gospel. There is no more powerful weapon. Accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, no weapon is more powerful. No heart can resist. So let us not lose confidence in God's power to save. Let us not be discouraged in the building of Christ's church. God's power is at work. God encourages through his people. He encourages through his power. And he encourages through his promises. In verses 9 and 10, God gives Paul a vision in which he speaks to him. And what he says serves to encourage the apostle. He says, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. God sees the heart of his apostle. And I think that's wonderfully encouraging. God sees the heart of his discouraged, frightened Apostle, and he says, Don't be afraid. He sees that Paul is tempted to stop talking about Jesus. He says, Go on speaking. There's no point saying that if there's a danger that Paul, there's no danger that Paul's going to stop. You say that because there is a danger that Paul's going to stop. Go on speaking. And God gives Paul reasons not to fear, reasons not to stop speaking. Why should you not be afraid, Paul? Because I'm with you. You're not alone. You will never be alone. You will never be alone because I have already promised to be with my disciples even to the end of time. And then Paul, who had suffered so much at the cruel hands of his enemies, so many beatings. God gives a promise A second reason not to be afraid. No one will lay a hand on you to harm you. Now this is not a universal promise given to all Christians. There are clearly Christians on whom hands are laid and who are beaten and who are even killed. But it is a promise for Paul, for Corinth. God promises him protection and you can only imagine after all the beatings in all the other cities what a relief that must have been to hear here I'm safe here I'm safe God reminds him that God is sovereign over his safety over his life I'm watching over you Paul and here in Corinth no one will harm you And immediately, from verses 12 to 17, Paul sees this promise fulfilled. 
in these verses, we see the enemies of the gospel and of Paul trying to incite the Roman authorities to stop the preaching of the gospel. Verse 12, Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. But God overrules. We see Gallion, the proconsul, doesn't want to hear their complaint and he dismisses them from the court. And the Jews are furious. And they begin to beat Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. Perhaps they feel that it's his fault that their plot had failed. But how encouraging for Paul straight away to see this promise being fulfilled. Then the last thing in this vision of Paul, perhaps the most encouraging thing for Paul, the reason why Paul should not be silent, God says, I have a great many people in this city. There are people in Corinth whom God will save, whom God has predestined for salvation. There are God's chosen people in that city who have not yet heard the gospel, who need to hear the gospel in order to believe, in order to be saved. God has chosen to save a large number of people and God has chosen the preaching of Christ crucified as the means to bring them to repentance and faith. So Paul, you must not be silent. You must preach the gospel. You must speak out. These people must hear the good news and I must send my spirit to open their hearts and save them. That's why you keep on speaking. That's why you must not be afraid. And Paul's response, verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. The discouraged servant becomes the encouraged servant by the people, the power, and the promises of God. And I believe that this evening, God wants us to be encouraged in the same way. By his people, by his power, and by his promises. He's placed you in a family so that the presence of his people around you will strengthen you and encourage you. So seek, friends, to serve and to encourage one another. Seek to strengthen the discouraged souls. Seek to strengthen those who are exhausted and discouraged. And let us trust in God's power to save. Let's say with Jonathan, the son of King Saul, that nothing, there is nothing to stop the Lord from saving. Let's say with the prophet Isaiah, the Lord's hand is not too short to save. And let's say with the angel Gabriel, for nothing is impossible with God. And let's take these words given to Paul for ourselves. Let's not be afraid before a hostile world, in a hostile family, in a hostile school. Let's not be silent. Let's keep on doing the work that Christ has called us to do, being witnesses of Jesus Christ. God will always be with us. I can't promise that you'll not be beaten. Can't say that. 
can't promise that you'll not be mocked, you'll not be laughed at, but I could probably promise that you will be. But I can promise that you'll never be alone and you'll never be abandoned. Nothing will happen to you apart from God's will. Nothing. And we can be sure, 100% sure, that God will act sovereignly according to his will in his time, in his way, to save his chosen people through the announcing of his message. He calls us to be witnesses in a hostile world and he promises to save. Amen.